are this morning, week six, the end of our Art of Neighboring series. And like you can see from Brenda and Jeff's story, we've just been asking what would it look like to be able to love our neighbors, to meet our neighbors. Some of us don't even know our neighbors. And so here they are, just they've got this friendship and relationship and put their you know, heads and talents together to create an environment to invite their neighbors into. And that's really what this has been all about. So uh, again, we've been asking, what if we took Jesus's command to love our neighbors, literally, what would that look like? And to help us answer that question, we've been moving through the books of first, and finally this morning we come to Second Peter, looking at the various themes and resources and ideas that Peter gives us to help us be great neighbors and great citizens wherever we live. And today, we again, we come finally to Second Peter itself will be in chapter 3, verses 3 through 15, and you can follow along, as always, on the screen or in your Bible Here we go. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. And that's God's word to us this morning. So this morning, I noticed it quieted down a bit there as we got going. Again, we come this morning to perhaps the greatest resource Peter gives us in either of his epistles, and that's this, the wrath and judgment of God. Yeah. And now some of you are saying, man, I knew it. (laughs) I haven't been to church in forever. And I come this morning and this is what I get. This is why I don't like church. This is why I quit coming. You know, it's always about judgment. The guy's always talking about it. Where's the love man, right? Or, or some of you are saying, I mean, I've invited this friend. They're sitting next to me. I'm real nervous about what's about to happen here. You know, please don't blow it for me, Morgan. Will they ever trust me again? Now, before you go, hide your kids and hide your wife. <laughs> Take a deep breath. Consider one thing. Consider that Jesus Christ, the Lord of love, and the Prince of Peace, the ultimate 
compassionate and loving person who's ever lived, not only believed in hell and God's judgment, but he talked about those two things more than any other person in the Bible. Did believing in and teaching about God's judgment make him less loving? No, it didn't. It actually made him more. And Peter is saying the same thing right here. Here's the big idea. Peter is saying this morning, he's making the radical claim that thinking about, meditating on, and taking into the deepest part of you the doctrine of God's judgment will actually make you the peace-loving Christian and humble neighbor you've always wanted to be all along. So how can, how can a deep belief, as Peter has, a deep belief in God's judgment change our lives and perhaps our city? Well, let's find out. Well, I want to ask this morning three questions of this passage. I'll put them in a bit in colloquial form. First, what in the world is Peter talking about? You may have gotten confused as you went along. Two, why would you blow him off? Why would you ignore him? Look at some objections there. And finally, who makes it through God's judgment? He tells us here. But let's begin here, number one, and just ask, what in the world is Peter talking about here in chapter three? And let me just set it up with this one thought. Every person I've ever met has been born with an innate sense of justice. And all the empirical evidence I need to prove this is through my four children born to me and my wife and who live in my home. Without any of them ever being taught about justice, they know that if one of their siblings hogs a toy, it ain't right. It's not just. If one of their siblings refuses to share with them after they've shared their Legos or toys or book or whatever... They rage against not getting an equal turn. They, uh, they're mad about not getting to have the book in turn or the toy in turn. Children know that justice ought to prevail no matter how small the case. Now, as you grow, there's a, here's a couple of things you can do with this innate sense of and longing for justice. Uh, you, first, you can look at the world and say, man, there's too much pain, right? There's too much wrong that's going on. What can I do about it anyway? Why are people so upset about stuff going wrong all the time? And you just sort of numb yourself to it all. Uh, you stop giving, you stop helping, you stop advocating, you stop being an activist for justice in your lifetime. You just sort of numb yourself with cynicism or you, you kind of try to kill or ignore that sense of longing for justice. And if that's you, your selfish cynicism hurts the world. On the other hand, you can say, I'm not going to forget about a thing, right? There's too much that's bad out there. I'm upset about it all. I'm angry about it all. I'm going to fight the whole world. Look at all that injustice. I can't take it. And because you see injustice go unpunished, you become angry and vengeful. And it twists you. And though you can't see it, you're not righteous, not holy, but vengeful activism hurts the world. But look what Peter's saying here. It's brilliant. He's saying there's a third way, a righteous way to look at the world and all the injustice that's out there. He's saying you don't have to give up on justice because of selfishness, nor do you have to burn out or become angry or bitter on the other hand. He's saying there's actually something you can have that can keep you from cynicism on one hand and anger on the other. He says it's a belief in judgment day. So now you're asking, okay, great, what is it? Please explain it for me. Great, let's take a look. And by the way, it might not be what you think 
what you've been taught or what any sort of movies or books have ever shown you before. What is it? Well, before I even try to define it, let's just be honest and admit on one hand, there are many phrases, images, passages in the Bible people like to use like a billy club. And some of them are confusing. You kind of don't know what they mean. Some of them are challenging to understand. But if I could just briefly and crudely compare the doctrine of Judgment Day to a golf course... Let's just put it like this. Some of those passages about judgment in the Bible, they're like sand traps, all right? They are a part of the course. They're there for a reason, but they're also where people get stuck, okay? They get stuck. So to keep this sort of down the middle, in play, on the fairway, so to speak, let's look at the one phrase that Peter uses here that's the phrase used the most often throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, to summarize what he calls the day of judgment. And it's this phrase, one phrase in verse 10. He says, but the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So that's what he calls it. Old Testament prophets call it that. What is the day of the Lord? Well, I want to sort of turn the question around on you and just ask, well, what would it mean for there to be a day of anyone, right? A day of you, uh, the day of John, you know, Betty's day. The day of the Susan, right? I mean, what would that be? Well, to illustrate, uh, last week there was sort of, and just please pardon the analogy, all right? So forgiveness, I'm already feeling it coming my way. There was Morgan's day. It was my 40th birthday, all right? I turned 40. It was a big one, I'm told. Nah, not looking for that, but thank you. I'll take it. Uh, and for a brief, shining moment, it was all about me. Uh, there were gifts you know, texts and Facebook messages in abundance. Thank you for them all. Uh, even there was a surprise party where, uh, for me where some people, they even hired babysitters. They, I mean, they paid some people to come to their house to watch their kids while they came over to celebrate me. Some people cooked food for me. Uh, I came to the forefront of their lives. It was more than I deserved by far, but that's just what happened. Again, on Morgan's Day, please forgive the analogy. Others receded. See, I came to the center. Or here's a better one. Uh, consider uh, the world of acting, right, in movies. Uh, sometimes in movies and production, and you read about this occasionally, uh, and most famously in, in the Back of the Future series, if you know it, there was an original, there can be this original lead actor, he's in the movie, he's in the production, and it becomes clear over time that things are just not going well in the production, right? Uh, with that person in the lead role, the lines aren't coming out right, uh, the responses from the surrounding cast are off, and over time it becomes clear that another lead, another center of the production needs to take place. And then when that change happens, then everything falls into place. The difference and the beauty of the change becomes so obvious that no one in the long run questions the decision, not even the, lead, the original lead actor, no one questions the decision to make a change. Or in America's athletic landscape, the same thing happened when the team's main player, perhaps the pitcher or a big scorer or the quarterback, the person who thinks they ought to be at the center of the team's plans, when that person doesn't do well, what happens? The team begins to fall apart. Things aren't working so well. But then usually what happens? Oh, the team brings in the backup, right? The one in the background, in other words, comes in, things turn around, sometimes the season turns around, everyone plays better, and things look like what they should have looked like all along. What happened? Oh, that actor or the athlete had his day. 
right? His day, his time had come, her time had come, her day has come, and now everything is put right, and everyone can see that that person should have been at the center all along. And that's what the day of the Lord is, except on a much larger and far more cosmic, grander scale. The day of the Lord shows us the same thing and the same truth. That the reason the world isn't right and the reason people's lives aren't right is because they see themselves as the star and the center of production when it should have been someone else all along. And what Peter is telling us here is that at the end of time, at the end of days, when Jesus returns, it will become undeniably obvious to everyone who has ever lived that Jesus should have been at the center of all along. The day of the Lord is when the one who's been in the background, in a sense, of the production comes and takes his rightful place as the center of it all. And things are made right. The production's made right. New heavens, new earth. It's all working like it was supposed to all along. Things look like what they should, they should look like because Jesus Christ has come. His day has come. The day of the Lord has come. And on that day, church, when his glory and his power and his person invade the earth, it will be so obvious that he should have been there all along. No one will be able to say it should have been any other way. Or to quote another verse, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is and ought to have been Lord all along. His day where he reveals all and his justice comes to all, his day will come. That's what the day of the Lord is. Now, before we move on to some objections to this, let me just say briefly, there is a principle within this idea that's working in your life right now except on a smaller scale. Here's what it is. Most people can see uh, why the quote-unquote the ungodly, that's the phrase Peter uses here, the, why the ungodly are those who don't want to know God, why the ungodly would struggle, right? Because they're making glaringly obvious choices against God's best for their life. But what about most of us in here, all the Christian people supposedly in here today? Now, I know I struggle And from my perspective, most Christian people struggle when God is only the director of a person's life and not the star, see, not the center. See, most people struggle because God's only on the periphery, on the outside, and we get the choice of whether or not we want to follow the directions. We remain the star, the center in our own minds, and then we struggle. But the Bible never gives you that option when it comes to having a great life. And what the day of the Lord shows us is that the reason why things are still wrong with the world today is because we think that is an option. We think God exists for us, right? And we're constantly frustrated when our passes in life fall incomplete or when our movies flop or our shots don't fall. But what we fail to realize is what the day of the Lord in the future shows us about our lives right now. Our lives are all about him. And when he's at the center, stuff works a whole lot better. Have you not gotten something, something happened to you, and you're crushed by it? Oh, that shows you think it's still your day, right? Not his day, not his day, not his life. And that's number one. That's what Peter's talking about. He's talking about the day of the Lord. He said, all right, well, why would someone object to that? 
What's the, well, the issues people, I'm sure, in here, it's coming up in your minds. Let's look at three of them and just ask, why would you blow Peter off? Why would you ignore what he's got to say? And there's three main ones here, perhaps more, but three main objections that Peter himself actually lists and articulates as he goes along. He's sort of countering people's objections as he goes. So let's take a look because, incredibly, they are as fresh today as they were 2,000 years ago when he wrote the book. So the first, of quest, excuse me, the first objection is, of course, perhaps because, number one, you've got an intellectual problem, just an intellectual objection to it. And the way Peter lays this out, it's actually brilliant philosophically, especially for a fisherman, and he puts it like this. He says, it escapes their notice, you've got to catch this, that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Did you catch that? He's saying the main reason people struggle with Judgment Day is because they don't believe in a creation day, so to speak. He's saying the reason people don't believe in a judge at the end of time is because they don't really believe there was a creator at the beginning of time, you see. You know what? He's right. He's right. If there is no judge at the end, excuse me, there's no creator at the beginning, pardon me, no creator at the beginning, there can't be a judge at the end. And if there is no creator and no judge, then right and wrong are meaningless. And so is your objection to injustice. Justice is an illusion if there's no creator and no judge. You're just getting worked up over nothing, over nothing. You say, well, well, what about a creator God who made everything and just who accepts everything and everyone? Well, to me, that's worse then no judge at all. And let me show you why. To say there was a God who made everything, but then won't hold the world and the people in it accountable, means there isn't really a creator. There's just a chemist. Just a chemist. Just someone experimenting, right? Sitting back, watching how it goes, taking notes, looking at the results. Any kind of results being acceptable because it doesn't really matter, right? Genocide, Rape, slavery, doesn't really matter, right? Great, he just accepts it all. That's not a creator. And you know it. A creator is someone who pours his or her heart into what they've made. They care for it. It matters to them how it's going. A creator is involved, puts loving boundaries on the creation based upon its design. So we looked at last week. So Peter here, he's holding you accountable intellectually and there isn't a way out of it. Because to say there's no judge means there's no creator. And to say there's no creator is to say that real right, real wrong, real beauty, real justice, love, how you feel, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. So that's the first objection you may have. It's a tough one to hold on to, I believe. That's an intellectual one. But here's the second one. It's connected in a way, and the second objection you may have is not an intellectual one, but it's just you've got a perspective problem. Let's look at that. What do I mean? Well, Peter says this. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. I guess that's what mockers do. They, they mock, right? Following after their own lust, saying, and here's the objection, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since our fathers fell asleep, everything continues just as it always has. Verse 8 Peter says, but don't let this one fact escape your notice. He says, it's a fact that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. 
The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but it's patient toward you. All right. Do you know what's relative in life? Right. Time. You know, it's not. Morality, right? Morality on a real basis, right and wrong basis, morality is not relative. But time is almost always relative. And the reason I know this again is from my children. And if you're here and you're single and you've got nieces or nephews that you've ever taken care of or you're a grandparent with kids, you know this is true as well because probably you, you've been involved in the classic case of a child and a toy at the toy store, right? Uh, if you've ever done this, you, you've been the good parent or good guardian or auntie or uncle or grandma or grandpa. You, you've taken the child to the toy store, right? And you've become astounded at the ridiculously expensive price for that toy or device or thing they want. But no fear, right? Being the good guardian, parent, grandpa, auntie, uncle, uh, what do you do? Well, because you're a modern 21st century person, you whip out your smartphone, right? And you go online in the toy store and you look at Amazon.com or some other, you know, online retailer. And you discover that you can actually get the toy for about, you know, 20 to 30% less. So what do you do? Oh, you begin to explain to the child in very small words about the wonderful thing God's invented called prime shipping. Which means you pay no additional shipping costs and you get it in two days at a considerable savings. Now, to a, to a prudent and rational person, this makes total sense, right? This is the reasonable way to go. But we're not talking about reasonable and prudent people. We're talking about children and toys, right? Stuff they want. And once you get to the words, you will not be getting it today. The small eruption, right, begins to take place in the child, along with the words, stuff like, you don't understand. You know, I really wanted it. Or here's the, the, the clincher, right? You don't really love me. Oh, man, tough one. And after the child gets home, what does the child do? For like mine, the child goes to the mailbox every 45 minutes for the next two days, right, to see if it's come. Why? Because all the child can think about is what he or she wants at that moment. Do you know what God calls his people? He calls them as what? His children. Yeah. What seems achingly slow to a child? The passing of time when something promised is expected. And Peter's saying, Christ has promised to return. And he's not slow in keeping his promises as you, his child, understand slowness a day with god is like a thousand years a thousand years are like a day what does it mean it means time is relative jack so back off you may have a perspective problem just because there's been something promised that hasn't come yet doesn't mean it isn't coming third objection you don't have an intellectual problem or a perspective problem perhaps you've got A personal problem. What do I mean? I mean, many people, perhaps this is you, you object to God's judgment because you think, understandably so, you think it turns people who believe in divine judgment into angry and vengeful people themselves. But look at what Peter presses you to see. He actually asks you here, he says, what sort of people ought you to be, right? He says, look, beloved, since you're looking for these things, since you're looking for judgment, be diligent to be found by him, what? 
and peace. What's the word? Peace, right? Spotless and blameless. He's saying looking for, thinking about uh, God's judgment will turn you, if you think about it rightly, into a person of peace. How? Here's how. Because if you know that God will pick up the sword against all evil one day, you can drop the sword in your life today, this day. People say, I don't like that. Oh, I don't like the idea of a God who bears the sword. It's not loving, but consider the words of Yale theologian, a man named Miroslav Volf. He was raised as a minority in Croatia. He saw his family members systematically raped and murdered and his nation torn apart by violence. And he says this in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. He says, one could object that it's not worthy of God to wield the sword. Isn't God not love, right? Isn't he long-suffering and all-powerful love? Oh, but he says, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. Here, however, you've got you to grasp this. He says, I'm less interested in arguing that God's violence isn't unworthy of him than in showing that it is beneficial to us. In a world of violence, we are faced with an inescapable alternative, either God's violence or human violence. Most people who insist on God's quote-unquote nonviolence cannot resist using violence themselves or tacitly sanctioning its use by others. They deem the talk of God's judgment irreverent, but think nothing of entrusting judgment into human hands, persuaded presumably that this is less dangerous and more humane than to believe in a God who judges. That we should bring down, quote, the powerful from their thrones seems responsible. That God should do the same seems crude. He concludes with this thought. And so violence thrives, secretly nourished by belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. It's amazing. Here's what he's saying. He's saying what makes people more violent, what makes neighborhoods and cultures and nations in the end more violent is not a belief in God's judgment. It's a lack of it, a lack of it. Because what's going to enable you to put down the sword? Hmm? Wolf says only if you see God's the one with the right to wield it. You'll be turned, he says, into a person of peace if you do. And that's what Peter's saying. Those are the objections, one, two, and three. Now, you may be saying, okay, all right, fair points, I'll grant you that, Morgan. But what about, what about the most important question, objection of all? If this is real and it's coming, who, who in the world can make it through? I'm glad you've asked. Let's look at it here, number three. Just ask who makes it through. And the reason we have to ask this is because sort of another objection, a final objection people raise, and it goes uh, along these lines. Maybe you've heard this. I don't care, people say, about a creator or time or peace or any of that. I just don't like the idea of a God who sits up in heaven keeping score of my faults only to throw them back in my face when I die. What kind of God deals out infinite punishment for apparently finite crime, sins and mistakes. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. I've done more good than bad anyway. What kind of God is that? Well, really, what that person's saying, what you're saying, if that's you, you're saying, I don't mind the idea of a God who judges, right? Because, you know, like Stalin and Mao and Hitler, they were pretty bad dudes. They should be judged. What people are saying in that is, 
They don't like the idea of a God who judges them. But again, Wolf's words here, he says, once we affirm that God's condemnation of wrongdoing is appropriate, again, once you say, man, God should judge some, some people, he says, we cannot reserve God's condemnation simply for heinous crimes for the Hitlers and Stalins of the world. We have to bring it home as well. There's no way of keeping it out there reserved for others. Where would we draw the line? Where would the line be drawn? He said, I originally resisted the idea of a wrathful God because I dreaded being that wrath's target. He said, I still do. I knew I couldn't just direct God's wrath against others. As if it were a weapon, I could aim at targets I particularly detested. Oh, we do that in spades in our culture. He said, it's God's wrath, not mine. He says, if I wanted to fall on evildoers, I must let it fall on myself. And he's right. And if the Bible's true, and it is, do you know who God's judgment deserves to fall upon? Everyone, including you, including me. So who can be spared? Who can make it through? Well, what you're about to hear is simultaneously the most freeing and challenging part of the whole passage. Let's go back to verse 9. He said, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to what? Repentance. Notice what he doesn't say. He's not saying, God's patient, you know. He doesn't want you to perish. He just wants you to get really, really good, to clean up your act and be a great person. Is that what he's saying? No, he says, he didn't want for you to perish. He wants you to repent. This means it isn't the good who make it through while the bad don't, or the bad who make it through while the good don't, or the conservatives who make it through while the liberals don't, or vice versa. No, this says the repentant pass. The repentant won't perish in judgment. A couple of weeks ago, if you were here, I brought up the initial scene of Flannery O'Connor's short story called Revelation about a proud and mean old racist religious woman named Mrs. Turpin. And two weeks ago, I brought up what happened to her. This morning, I want to conclude the story and find out what happened in her. You may remember she was sitting, and the story goes, she was sitting in this doctor's office, uh, in the middle of a doctor's office. She's judging every person she can see, while also in the waiting room was a young woman, a young college student by the name of Mary Grace, who's studying her college textbook. And after a while, she can't take Mrs. Turpin's judgment and conversation and contempt. And at a certain point, Mrs. Turpin sort of notices Mary Grace beginning to scowl at her. And now she aims her judgment at Mary Grace, and this is what she says. She says, It never hurt anybody to smile. (laughs) It's called being grateful. You're not being very grateful. When I think of all I could have been besides myself and what all I got, a little everything and a good disposition beside, all I can do is shout, thank you, Jesus, for making everything exactly the way it is. It could have been different. For one thing, somebody else could have gotten clawed. That's her husband. At the thought of this, she was flooded with gratitude and a terrible pang of joy rang over here. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus, she cried out loud. The book struck her directly over her left eye. It struck almost at the same instant that she realized the girl was about to hurl it. Before she could utter a sound, the raw face came crashing across the table before her, howling. The girl's fingers sank like clamps into the soft flesh of her neck. She heard the mother cry out, Claude shout, whoa. There was a moment when she was certain she was about to have an earthquake. 
But see, can you see? Grace, grace had come after self-justifying, excluding, power-tripping, religious Mrs. Turpin. And then when Mary Grace is on top of her, she shouted this, as we saw, she said, go back to hell, you old warthog. And Mrs. Turpin can't figure it out, even after they cart Mary Grace off out of the, out of the doctor's office. And, and Mrs. Turpin goes back home, and she begins to think about it. And then she goes outside, and Mrs. Turpin begins to talk to God. She begins to pray, and this is what she said. She said, why did you send me a message like that? She said in a low, fierce voice, barely above a whisper, but with the force of a shout in its concentrated fury. How am I saved and from hell? There's no trash around here I haven't given to, and I break my back every day working, and I do for the church. Why would you send me this message? See, she knows there's a message, right? She knows God's trying to talk to her. What was it? She goes on. There's plenty of trash here. Why did you call me somebody from hell? If you like trash better, go get some trash yourself then. Then suddenly, a visionary light settled in her eye. And she saw up in the sky a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls was rumbling towards heaven. There were whole companies of trash. And she saw battalions of freaks and lunatics leaping like frogs. But at the end of the line was a tribe of people whom she recognized immediately at once who, like herself and Claude, had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. But they were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they'd always been, just like she and Claude for good order, common sense, and respectable behavior. In fact, they alone were singing on key. And then she saw this. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. Oh, it's beautiful. What did she see? Oh, she saw 2 Peter 3 happening. She saw God's fire, God's judgment upon the earth, and then she saw who makes it through. Not the proper, but the outcasts. And then she sees what it's going to take for her to pass through judgment. It's going to take her own virtues, her standards of right and wrong, being burned away. She sees her deeds cannot save her in the end and that's what it means to repent to be a repentant person to turn away from as one great preacher said from your damnable good works or your liberal justice or your conservative values that are choking you and many times are just covers for your anger and for your greed or for your pride or your hurt and you say oh god i throw myself on the mercy of your court and in the light of your perfect and just judgment all my deeds burn away See, the only one who makes it through judgment is the one who knows they shouldn't, that they oughtn't. You say, oh, but that's not fair. Listen, I'll tell you what's not fair since you asked. A system based on merit, on merit. See, for the most part, moral people, right, good people, they're from stable backgrounds or moral communities. They've had the privilege of maybe great parents or communities or healthy authority figures teaching them how to be good and right from wrong. But what if you didn't have that? And God says, well, unless you're inherently moral and good, you don't pass. Oh, that would not be fair. That's totally unfair. But what Peter says is, it's not the good in and the bad out. It's the humble in and the proud who are out. It's the ones who admit, hear me, the ones who admit they need not a teacher, not a guru, not a commandment giver, 
It's the ones who admit they need a savior. Those are the ones who pass. And that's the ones who make it, who admit that God's judgment should fall upon them for their own crimes, large and small, against God and others. And this, friends, now is the gospel that Jesus Christ came to earth as a man and he came not to bring judgment but to bear it on himself in his own body and on the cross he bore God's wrath and judgment and fire in his own body for the sins of humanity and when you place your faith and trust that he stood in your place and he got what you deserved now you get what he deserved. God's approval, God's blessing, and the last word Peter says in the passage as God's salvation. God's salvation. And you can know, if your faith or trust are in that, that when he comes again, you'll pass. You'll pass through. And that's the gospel this morning. Hope you can say amen to that.